Welcome to the Love and Light Live podcast, empowering crystal lovers to learn and experience the art of crystal healing. Get ready to listen in and follow your soul calling with crystals. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for the Love and Light Live podcast brought to you by loveandlightschool.com. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this podcast is the number one place for all things crystals. In today's show, I'm interviewing Constanza Eliana Chinea of Embody Inclusivity. Constanza Eliana's work focuses on decolonial education and journalism through an anti-oppressive lens. I've been working with Constanza Eliana for a couple years now, personally and for my own businesses, and I am really looking forward to sharing this interview with all of you today. So because we had a lot to talk about and because I want to get right to the interview, um, I'm not going to do our Ask Me Anything segment in this episode, and I'm also not going to do the Trending This Week segment. I think that this is such an important topic. It really deserves our full attention and our full thought. And because I don't like our episodes to be too, too long so that you can tune in and listen in one sitting, I am going to get straight to the interview. But before I do, I want to just mention why this is so important. So this is something that we actually will talk about in depth in the interview. And Constanza Eliana explains why it's so important for those of us in the spiritual community, in the wellness industry, to be doing anti-oppression work. And this is truly, as she will explain, for people of all identities. So we actually recorded this interview on International Women's Day. I hope that you will listen with an open heart. I hope that you will learn a lot. And mostly, if you are not doing any type of anti-oppression work already, I hope that this interview inspires you to do so. And the great thing is, if you're looking for your next step after tuning in, you can check out Constanza Eliana's work at embodyinclusivity.com. She is currently co-facilitating an amazing monthly membership with Tommy Allgood called the Anti-Oppression Academy, and you can find more information about that at embodyinclusivity.com. There are also all the links put together in this week's blog post, which is a complete transcript of this interview. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this interview rather than listening here on the podcast, feel free to hop over to loveandlightschool.com. So without any further delay, I'm going to get started with the interview. Hello and welcome. Today I am so excited and honored to have the pleasure of speaking with Constanza Eliana Chinea of Embody Inclusivity, whose work focuses on decolonial education and journalism. So Constanza Eliana, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, So we've been working together for a long time now. I've been working with you (laughs) um, for a long time now. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on video and on the podcast um, because this has been something that, you know, I've been digging into a little bit more and more in my personal life, in my business. Um, And you've been a huge part of kind of helping to shape that journey for me and educate 
me on the things that I need to look at within myself, within my business, within the way that I kind of operate in the world. And I think that this is such an important thing for us to be talking about in the spiritual community, in the wellness community. Um, and you have a background in wellness as well as the decolonial work that you do. So I'm wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself uh, so that everyone can get to know you a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, so I had been in the wellness industry, specifically the yoga industry for about 11 years. So I started off just like many people do, just started off practicing, gradually um, started thinking about teacher training and starting to kind of, you know, teach yoga to other people, um, graduated from teacher training. And that was about two years after I first started practicing. And then I taught for about nine years. Um, almost 10. So it's, yeah, it's been a, a long journey <laughs> right now towards, um, you know, being more on the decolonization side of things. I think a lot of the experiences that I had in the wellness industry and outside of it um, kind of led me towards, you know, just being really passionate about um, anti-oppressive work, anti-racist work, um, and, you know, how decolonization theory and activism can kind of push that forward. Um, and, you know, I've learned a lot, a lot, you know, along the way. And, and I feel, you know, right now, having um, made the shift more towards journalism, I feel like I've kind of come full circle in a way um, where not only um, am I retelling my own experiences with racism and colonization and all of that, but I'm also able now to tell other people's stories um, around marginalization, racism, oppression, and how that affects a person's lived experience. So I'm, I'm just really you know, grateful for everything that I've been through. And at the same time, I don't necessarily want everyone <laughs> behind me to experience the same things. And so I think a, a lot of my work is rooted on that foundation of trying to pave a better path for the people that come, you know, behind us. So, yeah. I think a lot of the terms that you've thrown out just in that introduction will probably be new to some of our viewers and some of our listeners. They certainly, quite a few of those terms would have been new to me a couple of years ago. And um, I'm wondering if you can just give us a really quick explanation or description of what anti-oppression work is or means to you, because I think it can be different for everyone depending on the lens that they're looking through. Um, and it, actually, this is one of the reasons that I was really excited to talk to you about this today, because in a conversation we were recently having, you kind of explained how anti-oppression work in and of itself is like more holistic than just anti-bias work or just anti-racist work. Um, because it covers things like of all marginalized identities. So can you tell us a little bit about what anti-oppressive work is and means to you and why it is so important for those in the spiritual community, the wellness community to be looking at this? Yeah, I think, you know, anti-oppression work is pretty big. It's pretty general. And I, I think that 
um, you know, specialties like anti-racism that really target the system and oppressive structure of racism. Um, things that are very, very specific are important and they are included into anti-oppressive work. So I think in general, anti-oppression work is more about including all marginalized identities into the table and really understanding how any of us can kind of contribute to that continued oppression, whether it's systemically or individually or interpersonally. So my introduction to anti-oppressive work actually started through um, the anti-racist work that I was doing. So I first started learning anti-racism work as a result of all of the racism that I had experienced growing up, plus being you know, so entrenched in the yoga industry um, one would assume <laughs> that you wouldn't run into racism there, but, but it's actually really rampant. And so in my personal search for gathering language and understanding around what I was personally experiencing, I started to learn more about the systemic structure of racism. So I think specialties, um, like really targeted theories are really important because they're a deep dive into something. And then once you start to kind of really learn about that, then you start to learn terms like you know, anti-oppression or anti-bias. Um, and all of these theories are also specialties, but anti-oppression kind of gathers all of them. And it starts to show you more of a praxis, which means an education and action combined. So you're doing both, you're implementing as you're learning. Um, it kind of shows you the praxis to integrate into your daily life. So for instance, today is International Women's Day and um, a lot of you know, women are you know, identifying as feminists nowadays. But if there's no intersectionality combined with that feminism, then it really is just a different form of patriarchy. And so anti-oppression work can help you to see all the ways in which patriarchy and racism and you know, other forms of marginalization compound on top of themselves and you start to learn a new way of operating in the world, a new way of even um, engaging with other women, other feminists, if you will. And so that way you start to see, okay, it's beyond just me. It, I also have to understand how this can possibly affect or oppress other marginalized identities under the structure of feminism. And a lot of feminists don't um, do their due diligence to break down even gender bias and the binary of gender and how, you know, we can, you know, cis people can definitely perpetuate gender um, norms into their feminist principles or just into their daily lives. A lot of women don't understand how raising, you know, boys a certain way can continue to perpetuate the harm that they themselves have experienced. Um, and so in that same thought reference, then feminism alone isn't going to break down patriarchy. You also need to break down a whole bunch of other systems in order to get the true principles of feminism to actually, you know, go down. So um, I, I kind of, you know, kind of steer people um, more towards like these specialties are there for a reason so that you can do the deep dives into those specific things. But I, I, in the big picture, we need to do the macro work as well. So not just the micro, but also the bigger picture because systems are made up of a lot of different things. 
And so just targeting one thing is not in the long run going to dismantle the entire system. You have to target all the ways in which that oppressive system operates. So that's what anti-oppression means, at least to me. I think this is like one of the best things that I have personally learned from working with you is seeing how deeply intertwined and interconnected all of these oppressive systems really are. Because it's like you start to pull at one thread, say you're pulling at the thread of white supremacy, and you're trying to understand what that is. And you see how it's interrelated with a lot of forms of feminism. You see how like all of these things are connected and you can't just have the the one piece. And I think one of the things that you just said that really stood out to me and rang true for me in, in the, the work that I've done with you is that approaching things from this kind of anti-oppressive lens teaches you a way to sort of zoom out and get that macro view so that you start to shift the way that you think and the way that you interact. So it has to do so much with the action part of it. Like you said, it's the full praxis, not just the education, but the action. Because this, I can tell you personally, and we've talked about this, um, you know, this has so deeply impacted not the, just the way that I work in, in my business, but the way that I communicate and connect with people in my life that I love who have marginalized identities. So it's like, it's, it takes a lot of work, but it's a deeply transformational thing if you can really stick with it. So now that you've kind of given that um, definition and described it with a great example, like why is this important for people in the spiritual community and the wellness community? Why should we be doing this work? Yeah, I think it's really important because there's so many um, people of color um, that are working in wellness or that are practicing uh, different modalities of wellness, and they are experiencing the same level of harm that they would experience anywhere else. It's, you know, an industry is an industry anywhere, no matter if it's, you know, cloaked under the umbrella of wellness or cloaked under the, the, you know, the umbrella of, you know, fashion or whatever it might be. Um, how people are outside of that industry are the same way they are inside of the industry. And so what I was realizing is that the, the reason I was drawn towards wellness is because so much harm had been caused to me that I was kind of self-medicating through alcohol. I was disassociating by partying all the time. And so I was really unhealthy. Like my body was physically breaking down. And so I was introduced through wellness as, uh, or to wellness as a way to kind of um, reduce a lot of the harm that I was causing to myself. But once I stepped into the wellness industry, I realized that there are so many things at play, like capitalism, like patriarchy, like spiritual bypassing, like appropriation, all of these other, you know, isms started to come into play. And I realized that the wellness industry was not going to help me get away from racism, but it could be a way for me to deal with the effects of racism. So the physical effects that my body was exhibiting. Um, and you know that, that was good for me personally, but it still wasn't gonna stop other people from being racist. <laughs> it still wasn't gonna stop the misogyny. It still wasn't gonna stop the appropriation. It wasn't gonna stop a whole lot of things. So I think I was really disillusioned for a long time um, by the industry. And what I came to realize is that 
if people are shown that there is a different way of operating and that harm reduction can exist within your practice, whatever your practice is, whether it's yoga, massage, um, you know, therapy, I consider therapy as a part of wellness, whatever wellness modality it is that you're in, if you start introducing anti-oppression um, praxis into what it is that you do, then it becomes a lot more holistic and it becomes a lot more authentic because I think a lot of people don't realize that they are um, practicing in a way or teaching in a way that isn't actually authentic to them. They're kind of playing this part and not enough people understand how that's not only harmful towards your students or the people who are experiencing that, but it's also very harmful to you, the person who is doing it. And so I think anti-oppression has really taught me to incorporate all the ways, all the systems of oppression and how they kind of compound on top of themselves. Um, it, it really teaches you to not only be critical of the industry that you're in or other people around you, but it teaches you to be self-critical as well, because there are lots of ways in which I have personal privilege, even if I am a marginalized person. There are ways in which I have privilege that if I don't introspect that, if I'm not self-aware of those things, then I can perpetuate harm onto other people who are not part of my marginalized identity. And that's, that can be really um, tough work. It's, you know, in the industry is what we call shadow work, right? A lot of people move away from shadow work because they think it's like negative and you want positive vibes only. And, <laughs> you know, the whole, the, that whole idea around positive thinking is going to change your life, blah, blah, blah. Well, positive thinking didn't stop racism, racism from happening to me. It didn't stop other, other men inside of the wellness industry to be misogynistic towards me. It didn't stop the xenophobia that I was experiencing. Um, and it certainly hasn't stopped appropriation. So we can think positively as much as we want, but it's, we still have to start to break down those barriers that you know kind of um, stop us from causing harm to another person. And so I think a lot of the times we don't realize how um, certain levels of narcissism can kind of come into play in the wellness industry and to the point where it's all about you. It's all about you setting boundaries for yourself so that you're happy, you doing positive thinking for yourself so that you're a positive person and you can manifest all these things. But then there's no shadow work in there to see, well, what are all of the ways in which I hold privilege and I'm perpetuating that privilege onto a whole group of people that don't have that privilege? And, and what are all the ways in which I am perpetuating perhaps capitalism or white supremacy or you know, all of these other isms around me in ways that I perhaps don't even understand because I don't experience them on a daily basis, but I perpetuate them, whether it's consciously or unconsciously. And so the praxis needs to be there because not only do you have to learn about these things, not so you can perform it, not so you can co-opt it, but so that you can actually apply it. And once you do the application, which is the hardest part for most people, it's very easy to pick up a book and learn and read. And, you know, it's very easy to, you know, kind of listen to other people's stories and, you know, kind of empathize with them. That's the easy part. The hard part is actually implementing it because you might actually have to make a lot of changes into not just your life and your relationships, but also perhaps your businesses and your practice. 
And because that feels scary for a lot of people, then they kind of put up a wall and say, well, you know, I can't do that because, you know, I perhaps might have to change things about myself or my practice or my business. And that is going to cause a challenge, right? That's going to cause, you know, me to feel challenged. And so again, comes in the narcissism. But if you start to, you know, break down all of those layers and see that wellness is not meant to just be for the individual, it's meant to be in community and for community. Because if I am not healed, you're not healed. So you can be living in your bubble, but that doesn't mean that your healing is going to transfer over to me because I'm over here still experiencing harm. And in your bubble, you might not realize how that actually uh, contributes to my harm. So it has to be done in community. Wellness cannot be an individual sport. But unfortunately, the wellness industry has made it so individualistic that we've lost sight of what wellness is really about. And it's about liberation. It's about freedom. It's about harm reduction. So if we step outside of ourselves and see there are people who are telling me that all of these things are happening to them, they are experiencing all of these isms, then how can I step outside of myself and my privilege long enough to see yes, this is happening, I'm acknowledging it, but I'm not just going to acknowledge it, I'm actually going to do something about it. And that also has to happen in community in order for us to, um, you know, step outside the savior complex, which a lot, which happens a lot in the wellness industry, right? I have this privilege, and I'm going to do something about it. Therefore, I'm the one that's going to save you or fix you. But instead, it needs to be community first oriented. So it's, I have, you know, this privilege, I don't have the same lived experiences as you, but I'm willing to support you. I'm willing to do what I can to make sure that all of these isms or systems of oppression start to break down. So let me work with you, with community, with the marginalized and depressed to make sure that I'm doing my part in the breaking down of those systems, not I'm the one that's going to fix the system. It's I'm going to be a part of breaking down that system and building a new, more holistic, more um, rooted in wellness system. So and it's you know, a little bit of abolitionist theory there, but <laughs> I, I have to say, like, if I was listening to this conversation we're having right now, like five years ago, 10 years ago, even five years ago. I would have been listening, nodding my head, thinking, yeah, this all makes sense. And I'm a good person and I'm doing all the good things I should be doing. Right. And this isn't just about being a good person or a bad person or anything like that. This is about getting kind of really real and honest with yourself and thinking about this in a deeper way, because I have to tell you everything that you kind of just described about, you know, so often there's like this hint of narcissism in this industry and we go along like perpetuating these things that maybe we've been told and we're just regurgitating or whatever. That was me a hundred percent. I am like a hundred percent guilty of all of that, all of it being taught a certain way of doing things in wellness and that this is how it's done. And we don't really even question why it's done this way. We don't think about that. We just do this, or we put so much emphasis only on the individual and we don't think about how that impacts other people. Um, and ultimately I think 
what it came down to for me. And I seriously, honestly wish I could remember exactly who said this, that it just something for me, like clicked finally into place and totally changed everything. But it was someone saying, if I am a spiritual person, if I think I'm a spiritual person and the things that I want most in the world or that I believe most that I value most in the world are compassion and empathy and love and this feeling that we are all one and we are all connected and all those things that we hear so much in this, you know, spirituality community and the wellness industry if that's really true and if we are all connected in community and if I believe so strongly in compassion and in, you know, healing and love and something that I am doing is hurting someone else and someone is saying, Hey, that thing that you're doing consciously or not intentionally or not, that thing is hurting me. Why would I want to keep doing that thing? And that changed everything for me because it kind of was one of those, like, are you going to like walk your talk moments? Are you really going to take these things that you say you believe in? How much do you really believe in those things? And how much are you willing to accept those challenges? Like you were talking about in addressing them in your life, in your interpersonal relationships, in the way that you do business. Um, because all those things are not easy but they're a completely necessary part of this. And, and it is in a way like a huge deep dive into some shadow work. To be totally honest, like when we first started our work together, I had a little bit of an existential crisis of like, <laughs> who am I really? Yeah. Like once you strip away all this, all these things that I thought maybe I was like, you know, what is left and not just like the more surface things, but the beliefs that I held I mean, I was tearing apart beliefs that I held at my core and examining those and like trying to go back through. And I don't want to say that to like freak anybody out, but I think it's important to know this, like you were saying, this isn't just reading a book. It isn't just listening to someone's story. This is like interpersonal work. And mm -hmm. something that I think is also important to be said here is that this is work to be done by all identities, right? People yes. of all identities. Yeah, I think a lot of people have misconceptions that, you know, anti-oppression work is only for the privileged. It's only for people who are, you know, part of the dominant status, which right now is his cis white men, <laughs> if we're honest. Um, but it's not just for that. Anti-oppression work is for everybody because even the oppressed internalize oppression and perpetuate it onto other oppressed people and the cycle of oppression continues and it happens not because marginalized people or oppressed people want to continue oppressing other people but it's a symptom of experiencing harm and so there are a multitude of ways that can express itself out um that, you know, the people who are doing, you know, the, the domination and the control, 
don't even realize that that's what they're doing. They are teaching oppressed people how to oppress other oppressed people. And so anti-oppression work is holistic work. It's work that applies to literally everybody. And it's work that needs to be internalized because just as we're internalizing patriarchy, we also need to learn how to de-internalize that so that we're internalizing anti-oppressive principles and we're not perpetuating patriarchy even against each other. And so yeah, anti-oppression work is literally for everybody. But, you know, to your point, it has to be done in a way where, yes, you're doing your own introspective work, but you're also working in community um, because, you know, otherwise you're going to end up going out and, you know, thinking that you're going to save the world and that you're the only person who can save the world and you're going to make a whole business out of saving the world <laughs> and teaching other people how to save the world. But the anti-oppression work never actually happens because all you're doing is again, thinking in individualistic terms. And the other thing I wanted to touch on and what you said um, earlier is around, you know, good person versus, versus bad person. And I think part of anti-oppression work or anti-racism work or anti-bias work when you first step into it is a lot of guilt and shame starts to come up because that's your first starting to realize and you're really dismantling, oh, I've definitely done that before, or I've said this racist thing before, or oops, I definitely misgendered somebody, or, you know, I used to think, you know, in this way and that way. And so a lot of guilt and shame starts to come up. And sometimes that does um, kind of get people stuck in that place. And they don't really know how to get out of it. Because, you know, unfortunately, sometimes um, either the praxis isn't shown to you and it's not presented to you in a way that actually helps you to get out of that guilt and shame or through it, kind of work your way through those feelings. Um, or, you know, it's, it's just the person has a really, really hard time getting themselves out of it because they're still stuck in the individual. But one of the things that anti-oppression work helps you to get through is binaries of all sorts. We know about the racial binary, we know about the gender binary, but there's also the moral binary. You're, you either fall into the good person category or you fall into the bad person category. And a lot of people don't realize that that is a narrative that all of us have grown up in. Whether you lived in a religious household or not, whether you lived in the Western hemisphere or not, um, we've all been taught, right? Santa Claus is going to come and give you gifts as long as you're good. That is a narrative that gets internalized. Even in the workplace, a lot of people think I have to do all of this really, really good work. And I have to put in all of this good work in order for me to be rewarded. How? Through bonuses, through a raise, through all of these, you know, things, through um, getting promoted. And so what happens there? is that throughout our entire lives, we're constantly living on this moral hemisphere. Am I a good person today or am I a bad person today? And then you start to look at the prison industrial complex and you start to see, oh, so all of that crime and punishment narrative, I have also internalized that. What happens in schools, teachers say you're getting detention because you've been bad today. Or, you know, you're not going to get the star on the little board. I don't know if they still do that, but they did it in my elementary school. <laughs> we had a treasure chest <laughs> in my elementary school. So if you were good and you got enough little stars on your board, then you were able to, on Fridays, get your little treasure from your treasure chest. And it was like, you know, little knickknacks for kids. Um, and so you work really, really hard 
to be good or to be a good person and you internalize all of that. So the moment you do something quote unquote wrong, like you, you know, get called out for a microaggression, like you, you know, said this patriarchal misogynistic thing, like you promoted the white guy instead of, you know, the black woman because of X, Y, Z. And you get called out for that, or you realize it in the moment, or, you know, something happens and you're like, oh, that was bad. I'm a bad person. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve that. And so people can step into anti-racism work, anti-bias work, or anti-oppression work with that same mentality. And they kind of take it on as this like moral stamp of I'm doing anti-oppression work. I'm doing anti-racist work. Therefore, I'm a good person. But they haven't actually applied any of the principles or they're not yet able to get out of the guilt and shame section (laughs) of the work. And so that's what I'm trying to help bring people out of. Because even oppressed people who have perpetuated oppression by ways of colorism or, um, you know, misogyny or whatever it may be, even xenophobia can be internalized by the oppressed. And then we then perpetuate that same xenophobia that we're experiencing onto even our own communities. And so what I'm trying to help people get through is the fact that there really is no good or bad. There is no moral binary. Instead, there are choices. And every single day we can choose to reduce harm. And harm reduction isn't about perfection. Harm, because that's another binary, right? I'm either perfect or I've done it completely wrong. (laughs) And that perfectionism really holds people back. And so what I'm saying is we can start to learn how to reduce harm onto other people. And even if you are, you know, regressing, right? Like in your mind, even if you're regressing and you said a racist thing, or even if you're regressing and you accidentally perpetuated colorism, there are still choices left to make. You can still attempt to either repair that harm or you can choose to continue learning so that you don't perpetuate that same thing again. But if it happens again, there are ways that you can manage that not only within yourself, but within community so that we slowly start to work towards harm reduction and harm repair. And so the way that this works in in systemically is that we can um, start to integrate abolitionist theory into everything. And abolition is really um, a theory that, you know, kind of puts into play instead of just burning the whole bridge down because it's, you know, bad, it's, you know, it's the infrastructure is horrible, like we're just going to burn it down. And now people have no way to get from A to B, you know, across the river. Instead, we're going to burn this bridge down, but we're going to make a better one right across the way. And we're going to make sure that the people who didn't used to have access to that old bridge that we just burned down, they also have access to that bridge. And not only is this bridge a lot better, but it was built by the community instead of the capitalist like patriarchal standard. So now everyone gets access to this. Everyone has a stake in it, making sure that it continues to be a safe bridge for everybody to go across. That's abolitionist theory. And we can apply that into everything. So abolition is typically applied by way of the prison industrial complex with, um, you know, uh, I think a lot of people think of defunding the police, but it's a lot more than that. It's more so about creating um, creating structures that stop 
people from going to prison in the first place. Yeah. So it's like the abolition of the entire carceral carceral system. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not just, we're no longer going to have prisons. It's we're no longer going to uh, have a society that sends people to prison as a result of something that they did. Instead, we're going to tackle what did this person do and what were, what was the environment that led them to do that thing that society thought was, you know, bad or is bad. And then how can we work in community to make sure one, that person is also rehabilitated, but that that person also works in community and the community can help to support that person and vice versa. And eventually the community, you know, has a a form of healing that it didn't have before. Instead of just taking that person completely out of society, locking them away and throwing away the key and hoping for the best, right? Hoping that community is now healed because of that. So we can apply that, you know, abolitionist theory into every part of our lives. So if you, Ashley, say something racist to me, and I tell you, hey, that's really harmful. Now we need to work that out. Now we need to repair. Now we need to take a step back. Now we need to figure this out. But if you turn around and run, (laughs) or you start cussing me out, or you start defending yourself and, you know, crying in a puddle and, you know, you're so, so, so sorry. There's no repair there. Now there's just choices, right? So even if you start defending yourself, you can still make a choice to say, okay, I'm sorry. I just defended myself. I realize, you know, how that might come across. Let's talk this out. If you're willing to, I'm willing to do this, this, and this, what repair do you feel like you need in order for us to move forward? Do you need time and space? Do you need me to, you know, step down from this for a little while and make sure that, you know, I'm doing my introspective work on my own? Do you need other community members to come in and we can do a mediation? There are so many ways in which we can start to repair, um, you know, conflict and harm that has happened in a way that's holistic to everybody in a way where I not only get a chance towards healing, but you get a chance towards healing. And so that's, that's what anti-oppression work is meant to do. And everybody has a chance to do it. And that kind of takes that, that good, bad binary out of it, right? When you realize that it is about collective healing and it is about embodying some of the principles and values and beliefs that many people in the spiritual and wellness communities hold, try to hold, right? When we realize that this is a move toward that, it becomes really powerful. And one of the best things about working with you has been just that in realizing that every day is an opportunity for new choices and new actions. Mm -hmm. And so like one of the things that I very first was my very first like actionable thing when we started working together was deciding to no longer carry white sage palo santo ceremonial tobacco at my shop at my crystal shop um and this was it was one of those things that required some thought required some education on my part required a decision and like you were saying earlier a letting go of that perfectionism yep because it came down to this will not be a perfect choice. Mm-hmm. All, deci- all decisions are going to maybe have a bit of mess associated with them, yeah. right? And Always, yeah. Figuring out how to like mitigate that mess. Um, and that 
the good news is if I make a decision and it's not a perfect decision, because it's not going to be, and something else comes up, I can, I get to make another decision after that. And I get to continually move toward what feels best, what, what fits in with those values that I've aligned myself with and those things that I'm trying to move toward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that, um, one of the things that helps people get to the place where you got is that introspection, right? Taking a look at your entire life, your business, your practice, and seeing what are all the things that I have adopted into this practice or into this business where I have implemented that perhaps I was doing because I saw other people doing them, or perhaps I was doing them because they were trendy or someone told me I was going to make a lot of money doing that, or I've seen other people making a lot of money doing that. Why is this a part of my practice? And that is just base level step one. (laughs) And that is work only you can do, right? And only you have the answers for. And um, the, the reason you got to the place where you are today is because you did all of the work in order to see what is authentic to me and what is not? And what have I just been perpetuating because other people have been perpetuating them versus what is actually rooted in something that I personally have learned, grown up with, et cetera. And all of those things that fall into that category of, you know, murky, messy, I'm not sure, or yes, I've done this because other people have done it, right? This happens a lot more than people realize in the wellness industry. Um, You know, and I can just give personal examples. When I first uh, stepped foot into a yoga studio, the teacher was burning sage. And I was confused, but I was like, okay, I guess this is how this is done, right? And it wasn't until I took my teacher training that I realized yoga teachers, they don't burn sage. You know, it's just, it's not a thing that comes from the yoga practice, like the traditional classical yoga practice. That's not a thing. So how did this get to the yoga studios, right? So once I started getting really curious, I started kind of breaking down that whole, you know, idea of burning sage. What is that about? And then, you know, I I think too many people get stuck in, oh, I'm doing this because that's what I'm supposed to do, or I'm doing this because somebody taught me to do it. But perhaps they don't consider that that person who taught you to do it, somebody else had taught them to do it without context or without the proper knowledge of how to do it properly, holistically, you know, from, you know, perhaps from their culture, whatever it may be. And so, you know, it's, I want to be clear that a person's individual journey of how they get from A to B is their individual journey. So for you, it was white sage perhaps, and there's a whole host of other things that you and I have worked on, but white sage is, you know, just the prominent one that we can talk about. But for somebody else, it might be their yoga practice, or it might be Reiki, or it might be crystals. It might be something else that is very dominant in their life, but they're not 100% sure if it's authentic to them. And so it's, it, it, it can be really scary, right? Like I was in the yoga industry. Um, I am Puerto Rican. I am not in, from India. <laughs> I am not South Asian. I'm not from Pakistan. 
I'm, I'm not, you know, from a country that actually, you know, you know, birthed yoga. And so for me, it took me many, many years for me to realize that there are ways in which I have been appropriating this practice that I didn't realize. And there are still ways in which I can practice that isn't appropriative. And there are still ways in which all of these things that I have learned can still apply to my life in a way where I'm not the one leading. I'm not the one at the forefront. Um, and it can still you know, be a part of my wellness routine, but I don't necessarily have to be the face of it. And that, it took me a long time to get there, but the only reason I got there, and that's not a choice that everyone makes, but the only reason I was able to get there in my life is because I applied anti-oppressive principles. And I realized that if something isn't authentic to me, I shouldn't be leading it. And, and that's a choice that I made. Everything you just said, like that resonates so much. And just, yeah, using the white sage thing as an example still, when I started going on that journey and kind of uncovering and asking those questions, there were so many things that came up, right? Like there was the good, bad binary thing. There was the shame and guilt of perpetuating this. There was anger, a lot of anger at the people who taught this to me and anger at myself for perpetuating it by teaching this to others when I had no business doing that. So there was a lot to work through just on the like emotional level before I could even get to the point where I had enough clarity to make a decision going forward. And I think this is the, the biggest part about the work that you do that's so, so supportive because of the way that you frame it. It is done in community. It is done in a way that's supportive and helps you move from that place of feeling stuck into that place of action. And I know that you've actually um, just developed, you're co-facilitating a program right now called the Anti-Oppression Academy that focuses on this and getting people to work in community toward um, embodying these anti-oppressive principles. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the Academy, how people can learn more about it and get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a collaboration that I'm doing with Tommy Allgood. Um, he is an anti-oppression activist and practitioner. And um, when he and I were just, you know, talking amongst ourselves and we realized that there really isn't anything out there that can kind of um, help people apply all of this in a community-based environment. I think there's a lot of individual work that people can do and they can read books and, you know, they can take anti-racism courses and then after anti-racism, they can do anti-bias. And then, you know, it's, it's all very like scattered. And so we wanted to create something <clears throat> that not only gives out, you know, the education and the knowledge, but it can also be applied in the community that's learning. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. So, you know, we call it a program because it's structured like a program, but it's really a mentorship. And it, my favorite thing to do is mentorships. I, you know, run a mentorship program for people of color, specifically in wellness, um, you know, every year. And this I felt really strongly that this also needed to be a mentorship. And that way we all learn from each other because one of the biggest things that I have learned just on the anti-oppression side of things and the decolonial side of things is that when you do things um, in too, too individual, right? Like if you only 
you know, read to yourself and you're not really sharing this work with anybody else, or you're not talking to other people who are also doing this work, it can one be really isolating, but there's really no chance for you to actively apply this. Um, and, you know, there's no chance for you to actually spread the awareness of why it's important. And so we're doing it uh, mentorship style with a small group of people. So it's really still based out of, you know, um, learning anti-oppressive principles, learning what anti-oppressive frameworks are, how to apply those frameworks into your life, your relationships, um, the way that you interact with other people, the way perhaps if you're a business owner, the way that you interact with your employees and even your clients. Um, getting out of, you know, performativeism <laughs> and really getting down to the root of things. Um, but then in the application part, because um, it's a three-month program, so towards the end in the application part, we learn more about mutual aid structure and how that works. We learn about abolition and how that can be applied into our lives. And we really work together as a group to decide how are we going to implement this into our daily lives. And the group can then, you know, become more cohesive in a way where even as the program ends, you don't have to stop the work. As a group, you can continue doing the work, hold each other accountable. Um, you can continue having, you know, monthly, bi-monthly meetings, whatever the group decides. Um, and it becomes, uh, you know, it becomes really personalized to that group, but also the group helps to build each other up. And so I'm, I'm really excited about it because, you know, any, anybody can kind of teach anti-oppressive, you know, work, principles, language, whatever. Um, and it's good. It's good to learn all of that. But applying it is always the hardest part. And doing it in a community that understands what it is that you're attempting to do is very, very difficult to find. Um, I run a, a book club also um, quarterly. One of the things that people inevitably always say in the book club is, I wish I had this community locally so that I can continue doing this work. And I, I always feel sad when that happens because, yeah, it can feel really isolating to do anti-oppression work, anti-racist work, whatever. Um, but it doesn't have to be isolating. There's so many people learning, and I want to bring all those people together so that we can continue learning and applying and learning and applying. So where can people go to actually check out, you know, the topics that are covered and the structure of the program? Um, and also, actually, uh, before you tell us that, or maybe while you tell us about that, um, I know that you have a really cool way that you've structured this also that's rooted in anti-oppression, where it's kind of a one-for-one -one scholarship model, too. So can you tell us about that and then where people can go to read up on everything about the Academy? Yeah, so one of the principles that we are integrating into this is equity. So racial equity is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I think a lot of people understand equality and the concept of equality. But, you know, for marginalized and oppressed people, equality really isn't a thing that we've ever experienced. And so for me, um, equity is really important. And I always want to attempt to model equity as much as I can. So not only is that reducing barriers to access financially, but it's also, you know, just making sure that there is no hierarchy, meaning, you know, just because you can pay more doesn't mean you're going to get more, right? Um, and it doesn't mean that somebody else can't, you know, benefit from that privilege of you having, you know, access financially. 
financial access to something. And so the way that this is, uh, the Anti-Oppression Academy is structured is that when someone uh, buys into the program, so they buy a spot for themselves in the program, they're also buying a scholarship for a marginalized person to enter the program at no cost. And that way it's cyclical, right? Like not only are you, are you helping yourself, but you're also helping a community member who wants to be a part of this, but they don't necessarily have the financial access to do so. Um, so that's really exciting. And, I, and I'm really happy to be able to, you know, create that structure for people. Um, and people can definitely go to my website, um, embodyinclusivity.com, and they can um, find the Anti-Oppression Academy information there. Um, and they can also go to my Instagram, the link in bio has it. So it's at eliana.shnea, and you can uh, find all of the information there too. And I think, you know, for quite a number of people who are watching or listening right now, this is going to be like, they know this is that step that they've been waiting to take. This is what they've been looking for, because like you said, it's been missing from so many communities, um, not just in person, but even from the online space, it's just not there until now. Um, but if there are other people who've been watching or listening, who maybe a lot of the concepts we've been discussing are a little bit newer to them, or they're uncertain, you also have some really great like introductory courses to familiarize people with these concepts and kind of start to understand and integrate them into their lives. Um, and they can find those on your website as well. Yeah. So on my website, I definitely have a um, tab that you can click on that has all of the different um, programs and workshops that I put out there. One of my um, biggest things is identity work. I think identity work is something that um, is really important and it is something that you can do pretty easily as an individual. Um, but it's, it's definitely something that I feel, you know, needs to be done a lot more often, especially as people are moving through anti-racism and anti-oppressive work. So you're gonna find a lot around identity. Um, I have a race versus ethnicity um, workshop that uh, kind of doesn't just dismantle race as a construct and ethnicity and how you know the two are different. It really goes into, okay, you know, why do all these structures exist and how can we start to dismantle them, not only just individually, but also in our personal lives. Um, so that's a really important one. And um, I have others, but I'm blanking out on what they are. <laughs> There's plenty over there. So head over to embodyinclusivity.com. And I also want to encourage everyone who's watching or listening, if you have learned a ton this video or episode of the podcast um, and you want to show some support, I would encourage you to head over to embodyinclusivity.com and donate and or look for the link to the anti-oppressive canopy. Um, I know that it is going to be an amazingly supportive community facilitated, facilitated by two amazing people. So Constanza Eliana, thank you so much for your time today, um, for your sharing, your connection. Just thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, and you know, I've I've watched you do this work individually and inside of your own community. And you know, I I always love to see it. So keep doing your thing. And um, yeah, I hope people are able to join the academy if that feels good to them. And if they are still interested, but you know, financially it doesn't work out for them, they can always sign up for a scholarship, and we'd be happy to have them.
Awesome. Well, thank you again. And thank all of you for watching or tuning in. Until next time. Wow. So that was such an amazing conversation that I got to have with Constanza Eliana. Um, I'm so grateful to her for taking the time to be on the show to talk through some of the things that we need to be more aware of, more active in, in the wellness community, in the wellness industry. This is so important because it directly ties into our spiritual work, our wellness work. So thank you again to Constanza Eliana for being on the show. So, so grateful for you. And for everyone tuning in, if you haven't already, please visit embodyinclusivity.com for more information on getting involved with anti-oppression work. Consider joining the monthly Anti-Oppression Academy membership or Constanza Eliana's Patreon, and you can find all that information at embodyinclusivity.com. Well, I hope you found a lot of value in today's show. If you want more information about anything we discussed in this episode, you can learn more over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. If you did enjoy the show today, the biggest compliment you can give me is to leave a quick rating and a review over at loveandlightschool.com slash iTunes or head over to loveandlightschool.com slash listen to check out our most recent episodes, most popular episodes, and to subscribe to the show anywhere this podcast is streamed. That brings us to the end of the show. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and I'll be back with you in our next episode. Until then, crystal blessings. The Love and Light Live podcast is a production of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Connect with us online at loveandlightschool.com or on social at loveandlightschool. The content provided on or through our website or podcast makes no claims for specific or general health or health results and should not be used to examine, diagnose, or treat any medical condition, prescribe medications, make claims for specific or general healing or health results, or as a substitute for traditional medical treatment. For medical advice, you should consult a licensed healthcare specialist. For more information, please refer to the terms of use on our website at loveandlightschool.com.